Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for July 8th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio, Jamie Suskin, is a barrister in the UK, as well as the author of the multiple awards-winning bestseller, Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech. His latest book is The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, published this week by Pegasus Books. In it, he addresses questions like, is it possible to democratize digital technology? What kinds of rules and standards should govern important algorithms? Should powerful figures in the tech industry be regulated, like doctors or lawyers or even hair salon workers? Is antitrust law fit for the purpose? What rules should govern the use and abuse of personal data? Can we regulate social media without stifling freedom of speech? With more and more news reports of the damage that digital technology is doing to individuals as well as our democracy, Jamie Suskin's insights into the problems and challenges to reforming this largely unregulated industry are helpful for citizens grappling with the many issues with which we are faced. We spoke with Jamie Suskin via Skype on July 6, 2022. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Jamie Suskin. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Joy. Jamie, your book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, is, to quote the very first sentence, about how freedom and democracy can survive and even flourish in a world transformed by digital technology. And you assert that the central challenge can be captured in two words— unaccountable power. You then go on to note that in the early days of the commercial internet, scholars discovered that in cyberspace, computer code operated as a kind of law, not law as we know it, public rules decided by legislatures and judges, but a different kind of law embedded in the tech itself. Please expand on this. Imagine you're driving down the road, but you're in a self-driving car and you need to get to the hospital. You're in a rush. And so ordinarily, if you were driving that car, you might go just a little bit over the speed limit. But a self-driving car might refuse to drive over the speed limit because it has been programmed not to as a rule. It might refuse to drive on territory, which its GPS system said was trespassing. It might refuse to park in a particular bay near the hospital. You're coming up there against the strictures, the power of code. You can't get a computer system to do something that is not otherwise programmed to do. And the same is true in all of our interactions with digital technology. So if you go on Twitter, the rule is that a tweet must not be more than 280 characters. If you type in more than 280 characters and press click, the tweet will not send. You can't try and persuade Twitter. You can't argue your case. You can't plead for special dispensation. Code isn't interested in any of that. Code enforces itself. Code, as Larry Lessig put it, is like the difference between a door which says do not enter and a locked door. And in my book, what I argue is that we're increasingly surrounded by code, not just in cyberspace, but in the real space, meat space as well. We rely on digital technologies more and more for the actions and transactions and interactions that make up a meaningful life. 
And every time we interact with a digital technology, we interact with its code. And every time we interact with its code, we interact with the rules that are programmed into that code. And those who write the rules, those who own and control powerful digital technologies, increasingly write the rules by which the rest of us live our lives. Each rule taken on its own might not be significant, but as a whole, we are faced with a new and strange form of power around us, which limits what we may and may not do. And so software engineers, I argue, are becoming social engineers. Before we continue, Jamie, we'd better specify what we mean by Republican values and ethics, because you are proposing digital republicanism. Listeners, particularly those in the United States, may have been used to hearing Republican values and ethics with a meaning very different from how you use them. That's right. So the book tries to propose a kind of philosophy, a set of principles for governing digital technology, how we can make tech work to improve democracy rather than eroding it, to increase our liberty rather than reducing it, to reduce injustice rather than amplifying it. And the belief system that I've reached for is republicanism. But that's republicanism with a small r. And that is not, that is not, I have to emphasize, the republicanism of the modern day Republican Party in the United States. Although, of course, the name is not a coincidence. In the early days of that party, they would have seen themselves as small r Republicans. In reality, republicanism, small r, is a set of political beliefs that can be traced back to the ancient times, the Romans in particular. And it basically argues that no one should be subject to the unaccountable power of someone else. And that unaccountable power might have taken the form of a king or a conqueror or an abusive boss or an abusive landlord or of men over women, or slave masters over their slaves. Wherever there are imbalances of power in society, the traditional small-r Republican doctrine says that those imbalances should be reduced. And I like that as a philosophy. Of course, you will not see much of that in the modern-day Republican Party. So it's important for me to emphasize that yet again You have identified four basic principles of digital republicanism. What are they? So what I've come up with are basically four principles that I think should guide efforts to govern and regulate digital technology. The first is very simple, that the law should preserve the basic institutions necessary for a free society. So if it is felt that a particular digital technology, a social media platform, an artificial intelligence system, posed a genuine threat to the rule of law, to the functioning of the democratic order, then the first purpose of digital republicanism is to make sure that it is not allowed to corrode or destroy the basic institutions of a free society. That's quite a grand principle, and it's unlikely to be used very much. The second is the one I was referring to a moment ago. It's that digital technologies should not be allowed to exert unaccountable power over people, and that unaccountable power should be reduced and kept to a minimum. The third is that the law should ensure, as far as possible, that powerful digital technologies reflect the moral and civic values of people who live under their power. So this is the idea that politics should shape technology as well as technology shaping society. When there are powerful digital technologies, we shouldn't have to live under alien norms or values that are foreign to us. 
Finally, the law should place very strict restrictions on what governments may do with digital technologies. And the laws which are used to restrain the big tech firms should not themselves give governments too much power. So I think if you combine those four principles, and sorry, they're a little technical, but if you combine those four principles, what you have is a kind of guide for whenever you're considering a particular technology, whether it's an AI system or a machine learning system or a robot or an algorithm. And when you're considering a particular law or regulation, you can ask, does it answer these questions adequately? And I think that would give us a pretty good touchstone for a much better future. Yes, you note that the current political philosophy that kind of is dominant is market individualism. And you posit that against republicanism, small r again. Talk about that a bit, please. Digital technology today has been developed, but also regulated according to a philosophy which I describe as market individualism. It's important for me to say that no one ever really calls themselves a market individualist, and it's not even necessarily something that people would consciously consider. But if you look at how we've organized technology in society, and if you look at how it's developed, and if you look at how it's regulated, you will see that it all comes back to a system of beliefs that I describe as market individualism. Market individualism is a philosophy which says that the way to improve society, to have social progress, is for people to treat social life as a kind of competition, for individuals to pursue their own interests and look out for themselves, and if they want to act collectively, to bargain with each other, to negotiate and compromise with each other like they would in the marketplace in a commercial transaction. And if you look at how digital technology is developed, I think you can see that kind of philosophy everywhere. Most digital technology is developed in in the private sector, albeit with significant help from the government. Most of it is developed for profit. And then if you look at things like social media platforms, you can see that they are highly marketized environments. Even the concept of a tweet or something going viral is not dissimilar to the commercial concepts of supply and demand. And to my mind, the most market individualist thing about the way we currently regulate technology is those little consent boxes that you get when you visit a website or when you buy a new product, because it's a highly individualist way of regulating tech. You basically, as an individual, are presented with a very long and complicated legal document and are invited to agree it. Of course, you don't really have the opportunity to renegotiate that document. You probably don't know what's in it. If you did know what was in it, you probably wouldn't understand it. And if you did understand it, you'd probably recognize that it's not there to protect you in the first place. So the market individualist philosophy says, yes, we should all be rugged individualists and look out for ourselves. I think that if you see how it actually works when it comes to contracts and consent, like the one I've just described, you can see that it's the wrong kind of philosophy. I think most people are happy to have free access to different internet technologies, and they give up a lot in that process that they don't really think about, usually through that consent thing that you were just talking about. And they see it as, okay, I'm here primarily for information or connecting with friends and that sort of thing. But from the point of view of the technologies, It's really an economic transaction, fundamentally about collecting data. Do you agree with that statement? Yes, but only to an extent. So if you try to critique digital technology from an economic perspective, it's not going to get you very far. Because the truth is that we increasingly get loads of amazing stuff, and we get it without having to pay for it, at least not having to pay with money. 
So Google, for instance, you don't have to pay a toll every time you type in a Google search. Facebook, likewise. These are good and interesting things that have improved humanity. And so what you do give these firms is you give them your attention for their advertisers and you give them data about yourself. But in commercial terms, that data isn't actually that valuable to you. If I sold all the data about myself, it probably wouldn't be worth, in commercial terms, what I get from Google as a service. So if you look at things purely through the lens of an economist, then a lot of digital technology seems unobjectionable. But my argument is that the payoffs actually aren't in the economic sphere. What we lose tends to be the quality of our democracy or the extent of our freedom. And that's not something that can really be measured in market terms or in economic terms. When all of us surrender loads of data about ourselves, when we are surrounded by rules that are written by other people, there's no economic bargain or economic analysis that does justice to that trade-off. You have to see the digital as political and you have to regard it from the perspective of a citizen, not just a consumer. And that's where you really begin to see the proper cost-benefit analysis. Yes, and that's where the greater part of your book is addressing that. And I have to thank you, Jamie Suskin, for addressing this. And it was actually a new concept for me, although once you hear it, it's really obvious. It is political. You go into things like the morality of code. Talk about that a bit, please. When I talk about the morality of code, what I'm trying to do is nail this myth about the technology industry. And the myth is something like this. The tech industry is a realm of scientific objectivity, of neutrality, of rationality. The difficulty with that argument, which is made by the tech industry, is that it's fundamentally not true. So the first point is that big tech companies make political decisions all the time. I'm not saying they're good. I'm not saying they're bad, but they make political decisions. So, for instance, during the pandemic, Facebook took down groups that were being used to organize anti-lockdown protests. Now, you and I may approve of that. Some people may disapprove of it. That doesn't really matter. My point is that's a political decision. No law required Facebook to do that. No law prevented it from doing so. It did the work that in previous generations, public officials would have done. Likewise, Apple is happy to provide an app to users in Saudi Arabia, which lets husbands monitor the movements of their wives. If that's not a political and moral choice, I don't know what is. So sometimes tech firms do just act politically and they do so knowingly. But there are other times as well when the decisions made by digital technology companies are political, even if they're not meant to be. So, for instance, there are voice recognition systems out there that literally can't hear the voices of women because they've only been trained on data sets which contain the voices of majority men. There are face recognition systems that literally can't see people of color because most of the faces on which they were trained were white. The reason for this is not necessarily kind of out-and-out racism or out-and-out chauvinism. It's just that insufficient thought was given to the quality and representativeness of the data that went into training that system. But the fact that insufficient thought can lead to such an outcome, again, suggests to me that this is a realm of politics. It is a realm of morality. And likewise, you know, when people are engineering the algorithms that distribute our access to housing, to jobs, to criminal justice, to mortgages, to insurance, 
every decision they make favours one group over another. And that's just inherently political. And then finally, this claim of neutrality. I noted in a talk, and, and other people noted it before I did, that Google used to generate problematic search results for certain things that people typed into it. So if you typed in something like, why do Jews, Google would offer handy ends to that sentence. But those ends were things like, why do Jews have big noses? Why do Jews love money so much? Why do Jews control the media? And what was happening there was not that there was some anti-Semite at Google programming it to come up with these racist suggestions. The system was neutrally, neutrally and faithfully reflecting requests that other people had made in the past. But in that case, it's obvious to me, at least, that neutrality is not really a defense. Google has created a system which is amplifying prejudices that exist in society. It would be preferable to my mind if Google had engineered the system to minimize or reduce injustices in society rather than simply repeating them to a broader audience. And in fact, some years after people started talking about this issue, Google did change its algorithm. And so you'll no longer see as much of that kind of stuff. My point is this, though. Saying that a technology is neutral is not the same as saying that it is good or just or correct. Desmond Tutu once said that if, the, if an elephant is standing on the tail of a mouse and you tell the mouse that you're neutral, the mouse isn't going to thank you because neutrality favors the oppressor. Neutrality favors the status quo and neutrality often favors the powerful. So for all of these reasons, the claims made by the tech industry that their stuff is scientific, it's objective, it's rational, it's not just wrong, it's impossible. And it's not just impossible, it's harmful. Once we recognize that the digital is political, we are much clearer in our minds about how it can be and should be properly controlled and regulated. Well, let's go into the algorithms a little bit more. I learned so much, Jamie Susskind, from your book, The Digital Republic, on freedom and democracy in the 21st century. And now this seems like a small thing, but to me it was a big deal. In certain ways, it seems like the algorithms have kind of taken over quite a bit. And um, one of the reasons I suspect that is because you assert in the book that even the programmers, the coders, they don't really understand how the algorithms come to the conclusions they come to. Would you talk about that, please? Yeah, so there are two things in what you say. One is there are more and more algorithms around us, and that's just obviously the case. And in 10 or 20 years, they'll just be everywhere. So algorithms are kind of automated systems that are used to perform certain tasks or functions. And I've already hinted at what they sometimes do. So, you know, uh, algorithms are increasingly used to look over people's CVs when they apply for jobs. They're, they're used to assess applications for credit and for insurance. They're used to assess whether someone is likely to re-offend in the criminal justice system and therefore assist judges in how they sentence criminals. So algorithms make important decisions, but they also do other stuff. So, you know, text generation systems of the kind that I think we're going to see everywhere in the next few years, they're basically algorithms of a kind Self-driving cars run on algorithms, which churn through enormous amounts of data. So you're right, Joy, they're going to be everywhere. Everyone needs to know where they are, needs to understand how they work, at least to a certain extent. But therein lies the problem, because algorithms don't think like human beings. They don't give reasons like human beings. They work in a completely different way, and often it's very obscure. 
I once went to a demonstration in Harvard University by a leading computer scientist of a machine learning system he had developed to basically to help a self-driving car navigate a road. And it was amazing what he was showing me, how it worked. And I, I basically said to him, well, how does it, how does it do this? How, how does that work? And he turned to me and he wasn't joking. And he just said, I, I actually don't really know. And if even the smartest folks on the planet, the ones who are actually coding these things and programming them and inputting the data, if even they can barely understand the things they created, what hope is there for the rest of us? Well, there is some hope and I tried to give it in the book. But the point that you make is essentially right, that these things are not only powerful and ubiquitous, they're also kind of mysterious and obscure. And that can be used to mask injustices, whether deliberately or not. This is a bit of an aside, Jamie Suskin, but it's come up recently that some coder is asserting publicly that artificial intelligence is capable of consciousness, awareness, emotions, that sort of thing. Do you have any takes on that? Well, one question, is artificial intelligence basically the same thing as algorithms? You'll be unsurprised to learn, Joy, that I do have quite a pungent take on it, and it is this. Firstly, yes, what are described as artificial intelligence systems are these days are largely what's called machine learning algorithms. Machine learning algorithms are very powerful systems which process very large amounts of data. And to simplify, they basically detect patterns. So what a speech generation bot would do is that if you asked it a question, it would process the data it had been fed, and that data would be trillions and trillions of human words. And it would kind of, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but it would come up with, based on that data, a response to your question or to your inquiry that was statistically or kind of mathematically representative or probabilistically more likely from the data that they had been churning through. So if you're teaching an algorithm to drive a car, you don't teach it like you teach a child by sitting there and telling them, you know, when the light turns green, drive. That system will have churned through lots and lots of hours of footage of driving and will infer essentially that's when the light goes red, you have to stop. And when the road turns left, you have to turn. So to cut a long story short, yes, a lot of what's called artificial intelligence is just algorithms, the kind of machine learning algorithms. But that term artificial intelligence is kind of misleading in some ways. When you think about artificial intelligence, your natural thought is to what we would describe as artificial general intelligence. So a mind of some kind that is conscious and self-aware and almost lifelike, if not actually lifelike. Most machine learning systems today are not like that. They can perform very narrow tasks. And I think it is wrong to say that they have achieved sentience or consciousness. But what some can do, the text generation systems that you were referring to, is they can give a damn good impression of being conscious or sentient. It's not the same as being conscious or sentient. But because of the amount of data and the clever engineering that they've been fed, they can simulate human speech in a way that seems empathic and intuitive and interesting and natural. And, you know, my own view on this is, firstly, let's be clear, it's not sentient. It's just it just looks like it's sentient. But secondly, how cool is it or how scary that these systems can now appear sentient? 
it, it, it now seems and can feel like you're talking to an intelligent adult. And the implications of that are wild, even if the system is not actually achieved general intelligence. You can now have non-human systems that can banter, that can flirt, that can participate in political debate, they can give legal or medical advice, they can give therapeutic advice, they can be your friend, they can be your mentor, they can do all of these things even if they don't have consciousness like we do. And so we have to think through the social implications even if they're not sentient. You have some marvelous turns of phrases in the Digital Republic, and one of them is the marketplace of ideals, which brings up ethics and what you call the ethics paradigm. And I think this naturally flows from what we were just talking about, sentience and that sort of thing. Share with our listeners some of the issues around the ethics paradigm. My basic issue is that 10 years ago, there wasn't much being written about the responsible use and deployment of AI by corporations. There were some, obviously, and it's always been a source of historical interest, but it wasn't a widespread activity. Since there has been greater public consciousness of the kinds of systems that are being developed and greater calls for regulation, companies have come up with lots of things like charters of ethics or AI ethics codes or AI ethics guidelines. This is an improvement on the previous lack thereof, but to me it's not enough because the truth is what these codes amount to is companies basically setting their own rules and marking their own homework. It's no good having an ethics scheme if the first time that ethics scheme comes into conflict with your desire and need to make money, that it basically is put in a drawer and ignored. In other industries, law, medicine, and these are industries where the participants have acquired a degree of social power and social responsibility. We do have ethics, but the ethics isn't optional. It's mandatory. And it's not overseen by you or your company alone. It's also overseen by a regulator. So if you really mess up as a doctor or a lawyer, you will be sanctioned, you will be struck off, you will be fined, you will be suspended. So ethics is useful, but only if they have teeth. And I think the same is true in the tech industry as anywhere else. Well, you point out that once upon a time, Google set up an ethics advisory council, which it abolished after only nine days and the ethicists were forced out of the company. So that brings up the conflicting principles, some of them anyway, between the need to make money, privacy versus transparency, and even a problem of framing about should machines be doing any of this at all, you know, making decisions and that sort of thing. So could you expand on that a bit more, please? There are two issues. Sometimes these companies, when they come up with their charters, they will have, they will say, we're, we're in favor of transparency. We're also in favor of privacy. And it doesn't take a genius to see that sometimes those two might come into conflict and you need some kind of system of resolving that conflict or system of deducing priorities. And to me, it's, it's sometimes a sign of the intellectual unseriousness of these exercises that those conflicts are not obviously resolvable. But the bigger point I make in the book is this, where there are really powerful digital technologies that can profoundly affect democracy or profoundly affect freedom. I don't think it necessarily should be for companies unsupervised in any way 
to come up with what they think happens to be the best source of ethics, particularly when those companies have a conflict of interest because they're trying to make DOSH at the same time as ostensibly being ethical. Well, there are really big moral choices to be made. Those are, to my mind, appropriate subjects of politics and democracy. And in other industries, the basic ethics are not for the individual company to choose. It's set at a kind of social or industrial level. And that's why I think in a digital republic, it wouldn't just be powerful tech companies setting their own rules and enforcing their own rules. The rules would, to some extent, be determined by the people, and they would be enforced by organs that are independent from those who who are the subjects of enforcement. You write that the U.S. is an anomaly among advanced nations, and you share in the book some of what the European Union has been doing to address the things we've been talking about. In particular, the 2016 draft General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. Would you share with our listeners some of how that relates to what we've been discussing? Well, yes. I mean, the GDPR is it's a very long and complicated law that governs the collection and use of personal data. And that's actually been law for a number of years now in the countries of the European Union. And, it, and it's, it's essentially still the law in the United Kingdom as well. And by the way, it's not just followed by people who live in Europe, because companies who want to sell into Europe from other countries, including the US, also c- feel they have to comply with GDPR. Microsoft, for instance, I think says it is a GDPR compliant company, irrespective of where it's located. The real action in the EU has come since the GDPR. There's there's loads more stuff on the horizon. I think just this week, they've agreed a Digital Services Act, a Digital Markets Act. There's going to be an Artificial Intelligence Act coming around the corner. These are all major legislative efforts to curb the unaccountable power of big tech. And they really are first in the world to be attempting this. And I think everyone will be watching with interest. You're a barrister, so you take a legalistic approach to a certain extent to these issues. And you identify four principles of digital republicanism in in addressing the concerns we've been talking about. Would you share with our listeners what these four principles are? There are basically four principles that that I advocate for. One is that no technology should be allowed to disrupt the basic democratic institutions of a society. That's a fairly minimal requirement. The second is to reduce the unaccountable power of digital technology and keep it to a minimum. The third is to make sure that technologies, to a certain extent, reflect the values and morals of the people they affect. So the rules governing technology and the technologies themselves are going to be different in France as against the United Kingdom, as against the United States. And that's that's okay uh, as long as they are democratic. And finally, laws governing technology should place very strict limits on what the state, the government can do with digital technology. And it should never give more power to the government than is absolutely necessary in its regulation of industry. Now, there are different ways to approach legislating around this. And you identify some of them under the chapter Republican rights. And the first one addresses duty. The basic point I'm making in that chapter is in order to have a legal recourse, in order to be able to do something, if something bad happens to you on the internet or via digital technology, you need to have a legal right to something. Or the other side, the technology owners and controllers need to have a legal duty not to do something or to do something. 
And it's helpful, I think, when considering the future of tech regulation to ask which rights do we have, which rights should we have? But I also ask whether there are limits to rights, whether things are always a matter of individuals complaining. And you won't be surprised to learn that I don't think they are. So, for instance, say you conclude that a social media platform is corroding democracy. Everything is just a little bit worse than it would be if that social media platform didn't function the way it did. There's not necessarily anyone whose rights have been violated there whose individual rights. The harm is social. The harm is suffered by the social body as a whole. And so in those circumstances, introducing more rights is not necessarily a effective political solution. What you need are standards, as in rules that apply and are enforced at the kind of collective level. So the, the GDPR, for instance, imposes standards and rights, but any effective regulation of technology is going to require both. Let's use an example, and I'm sorry if I'm springing this on you, but in today's Guardian, July 6th, we're recording this, there's an article headlined, Families Sue TikTok After Girls Died While Trying Blackout Challenge. And it's a, it's a tragic case where two eight-year-old girls, different locations, states apart, thousands of miles apart, asphyxiated themselves because of this blackout challenge that TikTok had. Their families are suing. And here's a quote. TikTok unquestionably knew that the deadly blackout challenge was spreading through their app and that their algorithm was specifically feeding the blackout challenge to children, including those who have died. It lists a number of complaints against TikTok. So using that as an example, the question is, what, if any, duty, as things stand now, did TikTok have not to allow such things to happen? It's such a good question. And I'm not going to give legal advice on your radio show. But my real concern would be that in many jurisdictions, they would say they, they had no such duty at all, that they were merely publishing and spreading material and content that had been posted by other people on their platform. There might be arguments that they owed some kind of duty of care in the law of torts, but that's far from established law, at least in this country. Let me put it slightly differently to you. In this country, there was a tragedy a few years ago where a young woman, a girl really in this country, also died after a lot of social media use. And what was found out after her death was that algorithms on Facebook and the like were spreading material that basically glorified anorexia and other eating disorders. And we're not just spreading it, but we're targeting it at young women. And we're not just targeting it at young women, but we're essentially targeting at young women whose data suggested they might be particularly vulnerable or susceptible. And so that's very similar to the case that you're just describing. That was a hugely important case here in the UK. But I think it was concluded in political circles that there actually wasn't really a proper legal regime to protect people in those circumstances, to protect girls, to help their parents, which is why there is this massive piece of legislation coming forward, the online safety bill here in the UK Parliament, precisely aiming to deal with situations like that. By the way, you know, the platforms make some effort to correct this stuff when it's brought to their attention. You know, in the days after this girl's death, they said they were taking down twenty five to 30,000 pieces of such content a day. But they also have a lot to answer for because their business model involves algorithms which send information to the places where it would be most keenly received. 
your very concise legal question, what duty did the platform owe the people who were using it, is one to which I'm not actually sure there is a very satisfactory answer. You can be pretty clear that they didn't owe them a contractual duty. I reckon if you look in the terms and conditions, and I'm just guessing here, but if you look in the terms and conditions of TikTok has with its users, it's not going to say we owe you a duty of care not to see harmful content. It's not going to say that. And so the law has to impose some kind of other duty, whether in the like the law of tort, which sometimes involves assumptions of responsibility. Fiduciary law imposes duties on banks towards their clients, parents towards their children. But I, I'm not convinced that those duties are actually applicable in this context, which is why I think we need proper regulation. Well, let's go on to that. Share with our listeners some of your suggestions for regulations and some of the complexities involved in trying to establish them. Well, I'm going to say here, Joy, that to get the full menu, I really hope your readers will have a look at the book because I take those principles that we discussed earlier and I try to apply them in a host of different scenarios. So whether it's robotics, whether it's blockchain technology, whether it's artificial intelligence systems or machine learning systems, whether it's social media platforms, the Republican answer, small r Republican, let me be clear, not the Republicanism of the modern Republican Party, but the philosophical Republican answer the one which wants to promote democracy and freedom, it differs from case to case. It differs from case to case because each type of technology poses a different kind of threat and offers different kinds of opportunities. So I offer in the book, for instance, specific models for governing social media platforms that I think would be better than what we currently have. I have specific suggestions for governing algorithms. I have specific suggestions for the use and abuse of data collection. We can get into any of those if you like. But whatever your your choice of regulation, you need to be intellectually clear about what you're aiming for. And for me, it's about reducing unaccountable power and making sure that technologies reflect the values of those who use them. You say that the problems are structural and you suggest that certification might be something that would be helpful to society at large. And and you do take the approach of what is the best for society to try to get out of the, this is your individual problem frame that we find ourselves in. And you assert that certification should be pre-market and that it should incorporate privacy and justice considerations by design. Please expand on that. So when you walk into a building or get onto a bus, you're not presented with schematics. You're not presented with a form to sign consenting to the structure and architecture of that building. You assume that that building has been certified as safe and that it has been designed and built by architects and construction experts who are themselves certified and safe and engineers. The same is broadly or should be broadly true of technology. We shouldn't as individuals have to agree that a particular technology is acceptable to us. We should as a society set basic standards and norms and expect technology companies to comply with them. And if they comply with them, then they can be certified as complying with them. And the rest of us can be satisfied that they are compliant without having to make the investigation ourselves. So that is the kind of basic merit of a system of certification. When it takes place in the commercial process or what the specific form it might take, these are always going to be industry-specific questions. But in general, it would be nice, I think, if there was someone, you know, a regulator who had our back 
who was looking out for particular technologies to make sure that they complied with the rules that society as a whole had set so that we don't have to monitor it and enforce it as individuals. That's the kind of basic premise of my argument in favor of certification. The same goes for what you might call the certification of people. So in other industries like banking and law and medicine, or whether you're a pilot or a pharmacist, there are certain things you can't do unless you are certified to do them. That's because these are positions which hold social power and social responsibility. There's very little of that in the tech industry. You can be the head of a massive social media platform. You can be writing algorithms that determine the lives chances of hundreds of thousands of people. And yet you may be under no more obligation, no more professional obligation or duty than any other ordinary person of business. And that seems wrong to me. So we already have these kind of legal structures and frameworks in other industries. The tech industry has done a good job of arguing that it's different over the last decade or two. But I think that's that's got to change now. I note that in the United States, one cannot even cut hair without certification and being tested and that sort of thing. Well, there you go. Yeah, right. <laughs> you write that the size of these tech corporations equals their power. And you talk about the new Brandeis movement. And I love the quote, the mere capacity to abuse power was enough cause for concern. I, I wasn't sure if that was Teddy Roosevelt or Justice Brandeis that said that. But tell us about the new Brandeis movement and what some of the problems and challenges of dealing with the size of some of these corporations is. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpick there. The first is that we probably do have a problem with the concentration of economic and political power in the hands of a smaller and smaller group of very, very large companies. That is not a historically unique problem. Something similar was happening about a century ago. And the response then from persons like Brandeis and Teddy Roosevelt was to approve legislative measures that essentially broke the power of these companies, either by separating them or placing limits on what they were or weren't allowed to do with the power at their disposal. So the new Brandeis movement argues for something similar. It argues for a rebooting of American antitrust law so that it takes into account much broader considerations than merely consumer welfare. Because, as we saw earlier in the discussion, the questions raised by technology don't just concern us as consumers, they concern us as citizens too. I also in the argue in the book, though, that actually size isn't everything. Size is important. But you, you could still live in a society that was really unfree because of digital technology, even if it was a big brotherhood of a thousand eyes watching you rather than just one big eye. The effect can be oppressive either way. And so I actually think that sometimes our obsession with size can distract us from the actual potency of the technologies themselves, which is the really historically unique thing about our time. And finally, the word capacity in the quote that you used is one of the most important words in the book. Take, for instance, what happened a couple of months ago where Elon Musk said that he was going to buy Twitter and it looks like he still might. There was an enormous amount of ink spilled all over the world about what Elon would do. Would he rule wisely? Would he be naive? Would he save freedom of speech? Would he destroy it? And to me, that's an unacceptable way of thinking. Because to me, the question is not whether he'll do the right thing, but why he's given that untrammeled power in the first place, why it is acceptable or appropriate for someone simply by virtue of their great wealth to influence the democratic process, 
to influence the size and shape of our liberty. That seems to me to be wrong. And it would be wrong, by the way, even if Elon Musk governed Twitter in a way that I thought was great, because it's the principle. The principle is that he has that he would have the capacity not to. And that's what makes this all so political. So one of the things that makes republicanism, the philosophy, not the party, the, the, the philosophy distinct from other philosophies, is that it opposes the capacity to dominate, not just actual domination. It's a bit like if you have a, a husband and wife in, in, in the past, where there is a legally and socially hierarchical relationship between them, where the man exerts more power than the woman. One school of thought would say, well, look, as long as the man exerts his power wisely and isn't abusive and the like, then that's okay. What's the problem? The Republican, smaller Republican, says, of course, it's a problem. It's a problem if the choice remains his alone. And that's the way I feel about digital technology. Even when I love a particular tech leader or company, I feel unease at the power that they have at their disposal. Jamie Susskind, I'm very glad that you reminded us of the returning to the idea of the citizen as opposed to what we have far too much, in my opinion, been demoted to consumers. And one of your chapters is about deliberative mini-publics. Tell us about what you mean by those and, and some examples of them. So one of the questions I ask in the book is, how can we make technology more democratic? Well, the obvious answer is to use the kind of obvious instruments of democracy that are well known to us. Things like Congress passing laws or in Europe, the use of referendums and things like that. And they, they, they had a referendum in California not so long ago. When I was writing the book, I was looking for other forms of the democratic arts that we may have forgotten. And let me just assert, when we were saying democratic, we mean small d, democratic. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, yes, you're quite right. The practice of democracy, let's put it that way. And one of the, these words are so confusing. I'm a Republican and I'm a Democrat and neither <laughs> of them have capital letters. The point uh, I was making was this, which is that there's actually this other approach to democracy, which isn't appropriate in all circumstances, but might sometimes be really useful. And it's called the deliberative mini public. And it and actually is a really ancient concept based on sortition and it can be traced back to the Greeks. And the idea is this. You choose a group of people randomly in society and you bring them together you don't just chuck them together. You put them in circumstances where they are capable of being the best possible citizens they can be. What do I mean by that? Well, I, I think a lot of us would like to be better democratic citizens. We'd like to read more news. We'd like to feel more balanced. We'd like to be better informed. We'd like to have more discussions with people who are like-minded and who disagree with us. We'd like to understand different areas of policy, et cetera, et cetera. But the real world makes it difficult for us to be as good citizens as, we, as we'd like to be. In a deliberative mini-public, you're taken out of your ordinary life for a day or two, or, or perhaps even longer, and you're put in circumstances where you can just focus on being a citizen. So you'll be given a particular difficult issue of public policy on which people disagree, and you'll be given facts, you'll be given information, you'll be given argument from both sides, you'll be given access to experts in the field, and you'll be given the opportunity to discuss and deliberate in a structured and fair and informative way, and at the end, you're asked to come up with proposals or answers. And the, what research shows is that, and it's really gratifying, actually, w when you put people in good conditions, they can be really good citizens. They tend not to be tribal. They tend not to be mad. They tend not to be unconstructive. 
And that's why things like deliberative mini-publics have been used to deal with really difficult issues, like, for instance, the issue of abortion in Ireland and the issue of same-sex marriage in Ireland, too. These were both areas of policy in which deliberative mini-publics reached a view that the current system was wrong. And the rest of society was prepared to accept that and recognize that that was a view that had been formed through an appropriate process. And so what I would like to see, not for everything, but more and more is for difficult digital decisions and policies, I would like to see the use of deliberative mini-publics to try and think about them a bit. Well, Jamie Suskin, there's just so much more in your book, The Digital Republic, but we're out of time. So some final words for our listeners, something that you think is very important that we didn't get to, for example. Well, I I want your listeners to know why I write, because maybe they'll share the same hope. I love digital technology. I think it can make our lives more interesting, more fun, more dignified. I think, I think it can make humanity better. But I want to see digital technology developed and used in a way that is shackled to what's best in us and our highest aspirations and our collective aspirations. I don't want to see digital technology developing in a way that is purely a means of making money for a very small group of people. So what I think we all need to try and think about is how we can harness the awesome power of tech to make the world better. And my book is just one small contribution to that. I'm a political theorist and a lawyer, so I come at it from the perspective of politics and law, but there are all kinds of different perspectives on it. And I don't expect everyone to agree with my ideas, but I'd love for it to be a kind of debate, because for me, this is the big political question of our age. Well, Jamie Suskin, thank you so much for writing this book, The Digital Republic, and for joining us on Forthright Radio today. We very much appreciate it. Thank you, Joy. You have just heard an interview with British barrister and author Jamie Suskin about his latest book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century, published July 5, 2022, by Pegasus Books. In the time we have remaining for this edition of Forthright Radio, we share a sampling of some of the news reports relevant to the Digital Republic. First, a July 5, 2022 Guardian retro review of the 1982 movie Tron, headlined, Frankly, It Blew My Mind, How Tron Changed Cinema and Predicted the Future of Tech. Good things came out of the computing revolution, director Steven Lisberger acknowledges, but in retrospect, his techno-utopianism proved somewhat misplaced. Quote, Tron is so idealistic. If we just get the tools into the hands of the people, then democracy is assured for all time, he says. The irony is that the computer has been used to just damn near overthrow democracy. If someone had said, If we put these tools into the hands of the public, it's going to result in endless conspiracy theories, misinformation, lack of civility, endless rivers of porn, and the most violent video games you could ever imagine, we would have said, oh, no way, it's going to be wonderful. It turns out we can predict the tools of the future, but we can't really predict the philosophies or ethics of the future. End of that quote. And this NBC News report by John Shoup from June 30th, 2022, headlined, Police Sweep Google Searches to Find Suspects. The tactic is facing its first legal challenge. 
A teen charged with setting a fire that killed five members of a Senegalese immigrant family in Denver, Colorado, has become the first person to challenge police use of Google search histories to find someone who might have committed a crime, according to his lawyers. The pushback against this surveillance tool, known as a reverse keyword search, is being closely watched by privacy and abortion rights advocates who are concerned that it could soon be used to investigate women who search for information about obtaining an abortion in states where the procedure is now illegal. In documents filed in Denver District Court, lawyers for the 17-year-old argue that the police violated the Constitution when they got a judge to order Google to check its vast database of internet searches for users who typed in the address of a home before it was set ablaze on August 5, 2020. That search of Google Records helped pinpoint investigators to the teen and two friends who were eventually charged in the deadly fire, according to police records. Keyword searches have grown increasingly common in recent years as police have used them to search for suspects in a variety of crimes, including a string of Texas bombings, sexual abuse in Wisconsin, and fraud in Minnesota. They differ from traditional search warrants in that police seek them without knowing the name of a suspect. Instead, they are seeking information that might lead them to a suspect. Abortion rights advocates are also concerned about geofence warrants in which police ask Google to provide information on devices that were near the scene of a crime in order to find a suspect. That tool was found unconstitutional by a judge in Virginia last year, but that ruling doesn't restrain police in other parts of the country. Denver Police, with help from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, turned the keyword search several weeks after the fire, when they had yet to identify the people caught on security video in masks just before the fire was set. The keyword search warrant issued in November 2020 led Google to search for anyone who queried the address of the home that burned in the 15 days before the fire. Google delivered information on 61 queries, along with the IP address, a unique number for each computer on the internet. Investigators focused on a handful of those queries, asking Google to provide detailed user information for them. One of them was linked to the 17-year-old. The investigation revealed that the fire was set in a mistaken attempt at revenge against someone who had stolen one of the co-defendant's phones. After the fire, the co-defendant realized the people killed were not the people he thought stole the phone. If it wasn't for the keyword search warrant, investigators would never have suspected the 17-year-old or his friends, his lawyers wrote in the motion filed. The starting point was a search of billions of Google users, and all without a shred of evidence to search any one of them. The lawyers called the search a privacy violation of not only the 17-year-old defendant, but of all people who conducted a search on Google during the 15-day period. 
Rebecca Kern's political article from July 1, 2022, headlined, Push to Reign in Social Media Sweeps the States. Efforts to police speech on social media are spreading across the country, with lawmakers in 34 states pushing bills that are already setting up court battles with tech giants over the First Amendment. State legislators have introduced more than a 100 bills in the past year aiming to regulate how social media companies such as Facebook and Twitter handle their users' posts. Only three bills have become law, including statutes in Texas and Florida aimed at punishing platforms that Republicans accuse of censoring conservatives, and federal courts have blocked those two states' measures from taking effect. Blue states are joining the trend as well, though Democrats' emphasis is pressing social media companies to establish policies for reporting hate speech, violent content, and misinformation. The bills fall into four major categories. More than two dozen, pushed by Republicans, seek to prevent companies from censoring content or blocking users. Others, pushed by Democrats, aim to require companies to provide mechanisms for reporting hate speech or misinformation. Lawmakers of both parties support proposals to protect children from addiction to social media. A fourth, also with bipartisan support, would impose transparency requirements. Conservatives' efforts to ban social media from restricting users' content ramped up last year after the major social media platforms booted then-President Donald Trump following his supporters' January 6th attack on the Capitol. Since then, legislators in more than two dozen states, the vast majority Republican-led, have introduced bills aimed at preventing social media companies from censoring users' viewpoints or kicking off political candidates. Two of those have become law. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill prohibiting tech platforms from ousting political candidates. Texas followed suit banning social media companies from restricting online viewpoints. Now, those laws are going through the courts, where tech companies have succeeded so far with arguments that the measures infringe on their First Amendment right to decide what content to host. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire.